Welcome back. Uh, in this episode, we'll cover why history is crucial specifically for startup societies and why it matters. We'll talk about why the president of a startup society needs history while traditional founders can scrape by without it, because a new society involves moral, social, and legal innovation relative to the old one, and that requires a knowledge of history. History as written to the ledger, as opposed to history as written by the winners, the emergence of a new Leviathan, the network, uh, what is the idea of the One Commandment, a historically founded sociopolitical innovation uh, that draws citizens to a startup society just as a technologically based commercial innovation attracts customers to a startup company? We'll unpack the difference between a startup society and traditional startups, cover why a startup society has to begin with a moral issue instead of a for-profit technological innovation, how early America's religious colonies succeeded at a higher rate than its for-profit colonies because the former had a purpose, the kinds of compelling pitches startup societies could use for recruitment, why startup founders are arguing that the culture of their startup society is better than their surrounding culture, how the Arab Spring shows us the power and potential of startup societies, better metrics we can use to track and judge government's success, and we're just starting out and could really use your support. So please smash that like button, uh, share this episode, comment, sign up for our newsletter. I promise we'll make it worth it for you. All right. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast. Hello. Today we're going to be covering why history is crucial for startup societies. Uh, what does history as written to the ledger, as opposed to history as written by the winners, mean, Raphael? It's not a big subject. Oh, we're getting right into it. <laughs> Diving right in. You always do this. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, we're going to have our own open answer to this question, and then we'll we'll cover what's in the uh, what's in the book, <laughs> the holy book. But um, I guess my open answer to that when I first read that is like, oh, look, look, there's this um, exciting potential of bringing technology as somebody who, something that's just uh, writing everything that's happening. And for me, I understand it as, okay, well, if it's writing everything we're happening that's happening and it's not in our hands, if it's done automatically or via some kind of technology, then uh, it should be objective, right? So I think that's the shift uh, that he's proposing is my guess is blushing technology there is a layer of that technology that should be able to capture important interactions, definitely transactions, obviously, um, that are happening. I think this plays possibly in the governance sense, um, as we're seeing with some DAOs. And that history, that basically tracking is the history. And so I guess the idea is like, to what extent can we get to that level? And um, who's working on this technology? I think that's really interesting. I think if, if you are working on that, if you're listening, we'd love to uh, talk more about that. But that's the part I'm most interested in. I think the part that applies in a bigger picture is, well, we're probably, we might be getting to a point where there is a technology that can take away the bias. Um, we see that in a lot of, um, I mean, we see blockchain as an arbitrage uh, tool already. And uh, I think that'd be kind of cool. The furthest extent I could see that is everything is written down there is no um you know there is no uh human you know foiability i guess um 
room for human error. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we live in a system that's probably closer to the matrix or like an absolute power that re- records and reviews everything. And um, the area of choice is, is explicit in terms of what we're actually able to do because we would be able to see the history of everything that's happened before that. And, and have unanimity of, about of that, right? Have like a consensus around that is the truth. So right, which, um, which at scale, basically, which is which I think some religions wish they could do, basically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So if you um, listened into episode three, where we talked about why history is crucial in general, um, there's a specific part towards the end of the episode, we talked about, you know, how would that even be possible having history as a written ledger as opposed to it written by the winners? Um, and it could be done through... Um, some international organization or some uh, equivalent of biometric wearables that tell us the health of our bodies, but for states. So if your country is being monitored for the amount of carbon emissions that it's putting out, and that's then codified and put onto a ledger, you can tell and everyone can see the data. Uh, and it's immutable, so you know that no country can alter that or you know spin a different story. Or if, you know, a certain amount of that country's population is all registered and there's citizenry and that includes their armies. Um, and, you know, one of those people is declared dead and, you know, that then is shown in a war uh, to show the amount of loss, right? That's also another way that that can be measured and, and shown as opposed to right now, like what we kind of have going on in uh, the Ukraine-Russia war where it's very ambiguous. We don't know exactly how much loss has been done on both sides and therefore the accountability is not as strong as it would be if uh, if we had that truth so this is a transition from when we were talking about why history is crucial in general to why history is now crucial for startup societies starting with the fact that having this unanimity in truth by having history recorded on an immutable ledger as opposed to it being written by the winners uh, in the past uh, opens up a whole new world and uh, we've got an emergence of what's called a, a new le- a Leviathan, uh, which is basically just a source of power uh, that everybody looks to and respects uh, as the, the source of truth. And so in this case, we're talking about the network, a contender for the most powerful force in the world, a true peer and uh, complement to both God and the state as a mechanism for social organization. So Raf, tell us a little bit about um, why this is important. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it, it comes out strong, you know, like if you're mentioning both God and the state in one, in one sentence that I think you're, it was yeah, a very ambitious sentence. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's taking, he's taking a stance to say, look, the, let's not minimize the potential impact on this, but actually let's go big. And then, you know, you shoot for the moon, end up, uh, in with the stars or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I think that's the right idea if you're going to try to get a, an idea like as big as this and, and that has so many components. And it's just to say, stick around. Like if we can get all of these pieces together, the vision that you give to your society could stand up to uh, or be equal to um, other forms of organizations. 
uh, and I guess so the principle of, of God or, or I mean the thing is he doesn't really define God obviously but and different different groups will have different uh, understandings of that and and of course there's a more contemporary like waves of like oh you know like a mixture of of eastern and western thinking of having forces that are universal and and to what extent is it powerful and acting within our world um but it's true that sometimes for some people the government feels like that or like the concept of the state feels like that you know and so um you put that next to that and then we'll say well actually look we can build something um that lives in the ether essentially so on a, on the same scale uh but this time instead of being backed by entirely like guns, money, and institutions, or uh, some in, innate, you know, sense of spirituality or, or higher striving for essence, and then some like unprovable, you know, uh, analysis of reality. Here's this technology that could, you know, be the foundation for, for that level of certainty. Um, and I guess that's, that's what he's getting at, which um, if we can provide that much certainty, then yeah, that should exist in our minds with as much absolutism as the state or God, I guess that's what he's getting at. Yeah, I think ultimately it's kind of like, you know, humans have always looked to a source of higher power or a source of truth, um, whether that's the government or God or whatever, to organize themselves in these kind of hierarchies and also to answer the big life questions that were left unanswered. And so to me, he's kind of just proposing this as another way to do that. I think it's definitely pretty ambitious to say, um, you know, that a network, especially of one network state would be that for all of humanity. But if you extrapolate out how this technology could be applied to the world in, in the ways that we just did um, earlier and having a unambiguous, objective, tracked form of data, um, and that is objective and not subjective in discussions that are had at the UN, um, that is still a very powerful force. And it's still something that people can point to and say, hey, um, you know, it's not, this is what I believe, it's this is what happened. Uh, and now let's make a decision about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, the key point there is is at what scale does this act and and obviously it's got to be big enough that people care about it right like so it might be that some people are already living the in the network but is it having the impact of say the concept of god or the, the concept of the state even though you know even state we could um think about because there's a sort of like the communist historical aspect of you know what is the role of state and in fact i guess more um more contemporary uh the role of the state does take that place um, in countries like China. Um, so that's interesting. I think the the social organization aspect of it is is a really big piece, and I don't think we get into the I guess the the weeds of that in this episode or in this section. I hope we we do get to it either later on in the history or later on in in the book because how. Um, the vision or the one commandment that you choose, which is supposed to be uh, the thing that stands up against, um, you know, God in the state in the sense, how that impacts the way you would want to organize uh, or, or, or uh, how to prioritize, I guess, the power is a big subject. Um, and um, yeah, that's going to be really 
Yeah, I actually think it, it serves a different purpose and that kind of transitions nicely to what we're going to be talking about next, but it's it's just an additional source of power. I don't think it's going to play the same role as God or religion has played for people because it doesn't it doesn't really answer the um, existential questions or the philosophical questions as much as it just gives us a tool where now, like the scientific method, we have a system that gives us truth. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, obviously, there's going to be flaws with that, just as there is with the scientific method as well. Um, but it's a big step forward in the right direction in terms of having some agreement about where we're starting. And so that mm -hmm. brings us to the one commandment. So Raph, I'm just going to read this off and I want to hear your thoughts on it. Um, so he says, and then we'll bring it all together in the lead up to the key concept of this chapter, the idea of the one commandment, a historically founded sociopolitical innovation that draws citizens to a startup society just as a technologically based commercial innovation attracts customers to a startup company. So what is the one commandment in a nutshell? Yeah, so um, I'm first going to give his thoughts before I give my thoughts. <laughs> but his answer is that a startup society uh, needs to identify a moral issue in their culture, you know, so it's, it has to be relevant. And then they take the step of presenting historically informed uh decisions or rather a solution that is informed by how history has uh sort of developed so that they can um issue a new form of society those are his words um more or less paraphrased i don't know if that's applied right from the get-go or if this is something you know that is sort of like oh how much history do we need to have and how do we treat that you know I think once you're set up as a society, so presumably um, with that capacity, then yeah, okay, you can start making more objective decisions. I'm guessing it it does begin with some level of bias, but I think the core idea within that is, well, you're look, if you've chosen a certain moral issue, it's because you care about it. So regardless of whatever, there is actually a bias in there. And so whatever you've chosen to deal with um, will give you that tilt of what you're trying to focus on. And I think that's what he means by the one commandment. It's like, what is that tilt? What is that focus that you're going to subscribe to or like basically make the foundation of your society? Yeah, I think this is actually like one of the more exciting parts and differentiations for how he's uh, defining a startup society in comparison to a startup. So um, here, we'll bring back uh, the passage. Um, I just want to go over this one paragraph here, right? So if a startup begins by identifying an economic problem in, in today's market and presenting a technologically informed solution to that problem in the form of a new company, a startup society begins by identifying a moral issue in today's culture and presenting a historically informed solution to that issue in the form of a new society. And so... You know, I was thinking about some of the different examples of that in today's culture, and, and there are some. They're definitely not startup societies in the same way as, um, I think, Bology is envisioning, but they have the potential to get there. Um, and that's really interesting because for so much of the last, you know, 50 plus years, we've accepted, um, well, when I say we, I'm talking about the U.S. in general and mainly like Western uh, thinking. Uh, but capitalism or socialism uh, with some form of, you know, profit first thinking, uh, because that's just what gets people motivated or gets people in line. 
And more and more, we're, we're moving across that spectrum to see a more socially responsible version of capitalism and or a push towards socialism um, that is prioritizing these moral issues in culture uh, more so than you know profit first and, and greed, and greed is good. And so these are kind of the, the kindling that can start that fire. And if they're really organized, then performance could actually potentially even replace uh, this greed is good type capitalism. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the ideal, right? Like, we, we hope that yeah. each generation is more progressive, more thoughtful than the previous one. Um, I think it's it's a hard thing to prove that. And I think what happens is sometimes a lot of, it's just the issues are different because suddenly we actually are paying attention to the people in power or the masses whatever you either or both basically are now aware of a new issue that takes precedence. Um, how that comes up is uh, a really interesting subject, probably just um, in and of itself. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think with the network state, the opportunity there is those, those issues can be global and uh, they need therefore a global response. And, and here's a, a potential global framework basically to deal with those things. So, so that's really interesting. My only comment on this, as because I think it's basically here, he's presenting a methodology basically that we can unpack. And he's like, well, just as, you know, uh, profit-driven organization, as you say, will look at new technology as a way of solution, uh, as a way of solving that uh, a, a problem in society. Therefore, you know, society can look at uh, issue and think, okay, well, history says that this might be the best way to go or like at least if we consider history here's the strides we can actually make i think that's quite hopeful and optimistic i will say though that oh, my experience yeah. in startups um is that actually uh i'm not seeing so much technologically informed solutions but rather like market informed solutions and that actually the drive is how do you sell whatever it is because really the spaces where innovation are happening are, are very small sometimes um, and it's rather, hey, if we can get people to buy into this larger vision or this larger product, then we can convince them to build this and then we'll, you know, we'll build the rest of it later. And and what should have been like, you know, 100% of the technology is actually being pushed by 100% the market, 10% technology, you know. So I wonder, you know, like, um, are, is is that intrinsic or, or just specific to economic, uh, like an economic problem, an economic situation, or is that true? of, you know, most humans would, wouldn't most humans be motivated by, you know, whichever one will get me the biggest network society versus, oh, I'm trying to solve a network society, like I'm trying to solve a society's problem, actually, because then I would say it shouldn't, it's not going to be historically informed, it's still going to be sort of like whatever is the masses informed. And, and I think there we come into the same problems of what democracy is trying to sometimes do when applied more or less honestly. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I think it's important for us to to point out this piece right here, right? And that brings us to the next step, which is um, why startup societies aren't solely about technology. Um, so Balaji saying that, you know, wait, why does a startup society have to begin with a moral issue? And why does the solution to that moral issue need to be historically informed? Can't it just be a tech-focused community where people solve problems with equations? We're interested in Mars and life extension, not dusty stories of defunct cities. And then we've got this, this answer here. So I actually want to elaborate on the, on the, the longer answer here, but in short, um, 
says the quick answer comes from Paul Johnson at the 11 minute mark of this talk, where he notes that early America's religious colonies succeeded at a higher rate than its for-profit colonies because the former had a purpose. The slightly longer answer is that in a startup society, you're not asking people to buy a product, which is an economic individualistic pitch, but to join a community, which is a cultural collective pitch. You're arguing that the culture of your startup society is better than the surrounding culture implicitly. That means there's some moral deficit in the world that you're fixing. History comes into play because you'll need A, to write a study of that moral deficit, and B, draw from the past to find alternative social arrangements where that moral deficit did not occur. Tech may be part of the solution and calculations may well be involved, but the moment you write about any societal problem in depth, you'll find yourself writing a history of that problem. Mm -hmm. So what did you think of that? Yeah, I, I think that's the, I, I think that's probably the core of the piece is that if you wanna do something well, you're gonna look at where it comes from, right? And you're gonna see what performs, what has performed better in the past and what hasn't, right? So where it comes from matters where you're going and what you decide to choose. And then what performs better is, is a judgment of where you'd like to go versus where, you know, where you might fall. And you look at what uh, you look at, you have to look historically, like what's, what's happened and how do I know um, that I've made these, um, how have other people dealt with a similar kind of decision before? What can I apply here? So, yeah, I mean, that's the pitch, right? It's like, if you're not looking at history, how can you possibly learn about um, making the right decision for the future? Um, I think the steps are actually really good. Um, that's definitely a, a, I guess for me, it acts as kind of like an ideal that, you know, we should be employing in our lives every single day, who takes the time and how does that happen? Uh, even on an individual level, I think, um, we have that deficit, if you will, <laughs> um, ourselves. So how do you, how do you script that into a society where, you know, it's, uh, I don't think we can be so. You don't have to be so cynical all the time in the sense like you know there, there probably was uh there's definitely that sentiment i hope in the way um let's say in the way the united states was started in saying we weren't happy with what was happening here we've grown like this and we want to offer a new system therefore let's look at x y and z and see how we can script that into the system so that we can keep you know improving based off that model um how long that holds up? Well, things change really fast nowadays. So um, there, I think one of the places where now we see in government in the US particularly where that's not such a great system is, well, the, there's nobody actually like <laughs> keeping the temperature on that and being honest about like, well, is this really working? Is this always really working? Could we be improving? Not so much. Is that something that uh, this version of society, a network society would be able to do better? uh curious yeah can can that be scripted that would be really cool <laughs> want to be optimistic about it that this part i think is is yeah let's let's go for it let's someone show us how they think about that um the last point i guess is from my experience in startups it's actually the part that founders think about the least <laughs> it's like hey we have even i mean he should he it's a it's it's a i don't know if he realizes how good of the analogy is between like a startup uh I'm sure he has because that's sort of his um, experience too. But I find that the 
the best startups are the ones who spend the time to work on their vision, work on their mission statement, figure out their values, what are those principles, and making sure that the motivation of each of the founders are aligned, that they have, uh, that they have the words to then communicate that unified, hence the vision and the mission, and they're doing the work like weekly to sort of build that culture in their community. And uh, we don't have that in uh, governments at that scale. It just doesn't come out um, because there are so many steps, because there need to be so many steps, because there's so many people. Um, and so how does a network state offer a different model to that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, <laughs> I, no, but like you, I agree, right? It's, it's um, so I was also listening to the interview of uh, Bhaskar Sunkara on the Lex Freeman podcast, making the case for socialism. And um, he is a prominent thought leader in that space. And, you know, the, the thought process there is, you know, we'll take what we can get, right? We know that it's going to be more complicated and it's not as easy as capitalism, but the closer that we get to that ideal, the better, right? And so we'll take step-by-step step if that's what it takes to, to get closer and closer to the goal. Um, and so similarly, right, um, I think that these startup societies are selling, right, as the point you made earlier, right, it's it's also uh, market informed um, um, and that, you know, they're, they're depending heavily on this perceived value or the potential of what could happen if we achieve the mission. Um, and so I think using that potential to uh, attract members um, for example, right, instead of selling a product, they're buying into a world without ocean waste um, or, you know, an effective ocean cleanup solution that maximizes the capture of CO2 and, you know, uh, the production of oxygen, because that's a mission that gets people excited and gets people fired up and gets their time um, and effort to, to build towards right? Or if they're buying into a world in which Catalonia or Somaliland are recognized by the UN and can more adequately advocate for their sovereignty and rights uh, as a result of that, even though they're not actually UN recognized to this day, right? And so you can see it how the citizens of Catalonia and Somaliland would want that. Um, or maybe it's that they're buying into the potential of living in a new network state that aligns more closely with their values than their current country, right? So each of these dreams, right, are very attractive towards uh, individuals more so than, hey, like you can save 15% or more on your car insurance, you know, like- um, I've never heard that before. That's, uh... Yeah, like where is that coming from? So um, it's, it, I think it's just speaking to our, our humanity a lot more than traditional startups do um, and that's a very powerful thought, right? So like, you know, with social impact startups um, or with NGOs, why are people dedicating so much of their time? In some cases, I think, you know, NGOs are horribly run and, and they're spending way more uh, than they should be towards trying to keep themselves alive rather than solving the problem. But if there is a more highly aligned uh, community and the funds can be tracked and they can be used and smart contracts could allow for you know, certain transactions to go through when certain conditions are met. Um, and that means that the funds are used much more effectively and efficiently than at an NGO that just keeps hiring more people and increasing mm. their salaries. Um, that's, that's significant. Um, and so, yeah, it really just comes down to 
what do we place more value on, right? As humans, is it the profit um, or is it the mission of what could happen, what we could accomplish together when we all care about a certain issue and we want to solve it? Mm -hmm. No, no I, I think it's an, a, definitely a noble idea. Starting from the first piece that you said, it, we're just trying to move towards, you know, give us things that will help us move to in a better direction. Uh, state is so intertwined with power that it it's so difficult to uh, accept and change, basically accept and change and accept change, um, to, to say that we have progress in that versus science or technology or even markets, because, you know, you react to those, it's easier to react to change in that on some level. Um, but it's really hard to say that yesterday I was paying tax to the UK government, now I need to pay tax to this new kind of government, you know? <laughs> very hardships to uh to give uh over and so understandably much stickier um which uh, I, I guess was my point as well but um and the second piece i guess the second theme that i'm picking out of uh, from what you're saying and, and what's being said is also the idea the the power of wanting to be part of uh, a community that that's something like inbuilt in us we have to have an identity that we can find um in common with others um yeah you want to be that the the perception that you will always be um much higher for what you consider a part of yourself than something that you're just merely using <laughs> so as soon as you have that yeah that's why communities mission driven purpose driven type stuff is a lot stickier than hey i'm selling this cool recyclable yeah this cool this cool widget or whatever but it's true yeah. like you know i think the the conversation becomes very psychological and philosophical at this point and you know i don't want to go too off the rails but to kind of illustrate why why we think that way and why these things are more motivating for us um is there's a lot of research that shows um that happiness and in particular fulfillment uh, comes from challenging ourselves and overcoming those challenges. So that's one. And then mm -hmm. meaning, which is another form of happiness, comes from helping other people. Um, and so a lot of the uh, similarities about what drives us fundamentally, if we're looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, once you've got your, your base needs, your physiological needs met, uh, and your safety needs met, um, then it very quickly comes to self-actualization, which is where this fulfillment and meaning come from. And those are much deeper motivators and important um, factors of happiness than um, what I would call like joy or like short-lasted happiness, where it's just like, oh, I bought this cool new thing, um, right? And so ultimately for all these people, and this is just, this is completely ignoring the reasons that people have for fighting for something because they're literally in situations of oppression right now or suffering right now. Uh, and then it's literally all those needs bundled together. Um, but even for people who are um, not in such difficult situations, it speaks to a fundamental human need that we all have. Um, and so, you know, uh, one of the examples that actually one of our team members, Kristen at the Network State podcast brought up was the Arab Spring and how all of these people around the world um, got together, uh, decided that they were gonna fight for what they believed was right, uh, chose to risk their lives for it, and broadcasted that to the internet so that everybody else in other countries suffering the same oppression saw that and felt 
the motivation and felt the fulfillment and felt the meaning uh, that those people were going through. And that then led to their revolutions. So it, it, it seems like it's a very kind of wish-washy feeling type thing. Uh, but when you compound that and it gives you these, these um, psychological needs and you're seeing other people do it and it inspires you to do the same, those have massive effects for, for how global power is structured. I think it's a really positive message. And I, I really like the point about um, bringing uh, as much as, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is um, is a topic we talk about. <laughs> it's one of our favorite topics. <laughs> but um, I, I like the idea of being able to like, um, I think there's a shift in uh, the, uh, how do you say, the character of what is an individual within uh, a state that can happen through the network state or or just that should happen regardless because this is this is it's it's maybe we're trying to i'm trying to point a finger at what comes to the root of the apathy that we feel in in a lot of our in respective countries or governments or and however we deal with that but if we could judge governments the same way that we judge like successful people or success or success in our lives which is to say by those terms which is can government governments should draw meaning from helping others and in fact that's often used as like oh this is why we want to do and you know we want to work for an NGO or we're happy to work for the government because at least we know we're helping others you know that's like the baseline but when it's not doing that that's when problems really arise and that's when you get um it, it's much easier to be okay no we proactively we have to as citizens take on that responsibility and say hey look you're doing it wrong but more than that can you add that higher level of saying well, actually, a government should be judged by also uh, how happy we are with the government, which is capable of overcoming challenges. I love, and if it I doesn't feel idea. like the government yeah. is overcoming any challenges, um, like we're still dealing with the same problems, the same gridlock, the same corruption, the same stories just repackaged across our economy. I mean, we just saw it with with FTX and SBF and and the fact that um, people who are economic historians are like, yeah, but that's the same, it's the same crooked deal that you guys saw with Madoff. And it's the same thing that happened in um, in the Netherlands as far back as like the stock market has been, you know, as far back as there's been a modern stock market, basically. And you're like, well, okay, so clearly these governments are not capable of overcoming these certain kinds of challenges. Or they are in some cases, and we learn from that, and we add to that piece, but then look at the backlash from that. And so it's like, where's the message out there so that people know that, you know, we are progressing on that, and you can draw um, a certain amount of happiness from that. And, I think and where that is, falls within the role of government, I don't know, but yeah. I think this is the most interesting point about all of this, and, and it's uh, what excites me probably the most about these prospects. Um, but before jumping into that, I do want to share uh, quickly... Uh, 80,000 hours for nobody who knows about it. Um, this whole company, I think it was started by a bunch of researchers at Oxford. Um, yeah. Um, is basically dedicating all of their time towards helping people find more impactful careers, right? Or impactful careers um, that will have a positive impact on the world. Um, and so it's the same idea, right? It's just speaking to all these people, like you said, right, who are, who are in this apathetic state, or they feel bored, or they don't have fulfillment, or they don't have the meaning that they're looking for. Um, and that's producing anxiety or depression for them. And this is why we see those, um, the rates of those conditions going up. Um, this is, this has been around for a while, 
uh, and this could very easily become a startup society, right? Uh, where that there where that aligned action is is even more present. But uh, to bring it back to like why this is so exciting and how it impacts uh, the world um, at large is we are using the wrong metrics to determine success on a global scale and in, and in individual countries, right? So we're looking at GDP as economic power and it has absolutely nothing to do with what actually like Andrew Yang was talking about earlier on when he was running for president in the US, but like a national happiness index, right? And we do measure happiness in other countries and stuff, but that's not the metrics that our leaders are held accountable to in any way. And so it kind of brings us to this catch 22 that we talked about in previous episodes where we actually know the metrics that we should be paying attention to as countries and what would bring more satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment, meaning, et cetera, all these different forms. I mean, happiness is a very complex topic on its own, but there has been a lot of studies and overall that is a step in the right direction um, with the prisoner's dilemma that all countries find themselves in where they have to compete on the economic side so that they have enough profit to invest in the things like defense and these existential threats um, that keep them in the game or that allow them to have more power to influence other countries to do their bidding in whatever way they want. And so ultimately, it's not about um, you know whether or not we have the means to measure the right things, because we do have that. It's do we have the people in power, and and by people in power, I mean everywhere in the world, prioritizing those things over the traditional metrics that don't actually help everybody, don't make everybody feel better, but do make them feel better if they have more power and they can influence and do things like that. And so that brings us to the end of uh, that argument, which is what does human nature prioritize more, right? Is it... Um, that you're a narcissist or a sociopath and uh, you're power hungry and that's the only thing that matters ultimately and that's what brings you this happiness and fulfillment and therefore you know no matter what you're going to do that or is there a side of us that prioritizes the uh, fulfillment meaning well-being self-actualization whatever of ourselves and the people that we care for and it's 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 such a hard question to, I don't think there is one answer. I think what we're trying to do currently is everybody's exploring all these different solutions, but it's all within the power umbrella of these existential threats. And that kind of gives us this glass ceiling that we can't really break through until we figure that out, right? If we prioritize our national happiness and for whatever reason, and there are many studies that show that actually being more happy at work leads to more productivity, which would lead to more financial success. But let's say that in a scenario that's not the case and happiness comes at the expense of economic growth, then we are we, we have to accept the choice. If we choose to prioritize our happiness, we are also putting ourselves at an existential risk towards another country taking global power and doing whatever they want. So yeah, that's the conundrum. What do we do about it? I um, I choose to answer that in a different episode. <laughs> no, <laughs> for sure. That's a big is, question. But I, a, I will say I, I will say um I think one thing we can we can challenge ourselves to 
again to use this word is um to take all of that at the individual level and just think about you know where are those moments where um we ourselves are overcoming challenges when are we helping people um because if yeah you want the leaders to be held accountable for that we say that this is the way that the system might change but I'm a big believer in if, if you're not even doing it yourself, you know, if you're not taking responsibility for it, then I think it's gonna be difficult. And I'm not and, and you know, life is, is difficult. <laughs> There's so many things you have to deal with, no matter what level you're at, um, no matter where you come from, but spending a little bit more time, just as that wherever your mind is at is really often where your reality at is, is where you're at. And if you can spend a little bit more time about thinking about those kinds of ideas, and reviewing yourself and saying, you know, am, am I holding myself to that standard? Then there's a chance that, you know, this might be meaningful and move forward. And, and that uh, whatever it is that we're trying to build, whether it's a network state or, or just, being, um, just being a better, more meaningful person by helping people and overcoming challenges, hopefully those things, um, those things will happen. You know, that, that, that energy aggregates itself. <laughs> yeah. I love the idea of bringing it to the individual level and just letting everybody decide for themselves. Like, because you're an individual. Even, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> like that's ultimately, you know, where the decision is going to be made in my life. So it depends on uh, what do I value more? And, you know, should everybody in the world uh, think about how their individual actions uh, have an impact on the rest of the world and global powers and, you know, change the game? Yes, for sure. But ultimately, if what brings you meaning and fulfillment is joining a new startup society that has a mission to do something that you really care about. I say, go for it, right? Like why uh, stop yourself from solving the problems that you care about for the potential threat in the future that um, some other country comes to power, you know, maybe, maybe the, the philosophical decision isn't as, uh, as grand as we make it seem. And it's also potentially putting too much power uh, in the individual's hands or that that isn't actually there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like, do we even have an influence on that from uh, just the compounding of people choosing to prioritize mission over profit? Um, and maybe, you know, eventually in another theoretical scenario, if enough people choose to care about certain values and those values happen to be good for other people, um, that compounding effect just changes how people operate in general. And we don't have as many problems where we have to have these existential threats. Right. And now I'm pointing like a painting, a really rosy picture, but um, it kind of, it kind of begs the question uh, same with these happiness studies, some of them have found, you know, and this is just relevant for the US, but like around 80K uh, of annual salary, more money doesn't really add much more happiness, right? It becomes this hedonistic treadmill where the same experiences just don't really bring you the same amount of happiness. And so if everybody has that level, and I don't know if that's that's an actual thing and it exists, but if there were such a thing and people were satisfied and they got to the point where now the thing that brings them meaning is helping other people. And that happened for everybody. You know, how would the world look? What would, it, what would be different? Would we still fight about borders and wars and natural resources and our economic trade and stuff? Or would we be much more collaborative as a society or a global uh, society? Yeah. <laughs>
We just don't know. Well, <laughs> I I didn't want to jump right into it because it's um it's it's again that Maslow's pyramid, right? It's like if everybody's needs are fulfilled, then yeah, everything is good. But um, talk, keeping it practically and keeping it how I think is um is also the mission that I'm trying to provide. <laughs> um, but I did want to say that at the beginning, um, that the it reminded me of. It's it's a character. It's a narrator in one of uh, Haruki Murakami's uh, novels, the Hard Boiled uh, Wonderland, where the character is like, like he's waiting in this ridiculously long elevator ride, I think, and he's like, I don't think people really care about like how much does it impact you the fact that the world is round or it could be like flat, like a coffee table. I think way before the flat earthers like actually research, <laughs> um, which I think is kind of funny and telling. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's like, either way, does that impact your life? You know, like, just as you said, existentially, like, do, at, from the individual level, um, yeah, I guess you could worry about a lot of things that are being said on the news, but really, realistically, how much of that time is is worth your energy versus, you know, whatever's in front of you, whatever's in your mind, and whatever you actually care about. So that that's all I wanted to say on that, because everything else is like, oh, boy, you know, those are those are future episode uh Ideas. Those are future episode questions, but that's why we will leave you audience with those questions to ponder. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode and we'll see you in the next one. Like and subscribe. <laughs> yes. Like, subscribe, share, comment, all of the things.